0: You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 33. The Magazine A copy of the Puffin Post, the magazine of the Puffin Club. An entire page is devoted to a theatrical production at the Young Vic in London, with a photo of me in costume. It was the first time I ever saw my name in print, an exciting and auspicious event, even though they misspelt Matthew with one T. It used to be simple with paperbacks. Pelican for textbooks, Penguin for novels or autobiography, Puffin for children. If the book was in any way flashy or salacious, it would appear in the Pan or New English Library imprint, the homes of Jacqueline Suzanne or James Hadley Chase. Such was the social and intellectual divide in paperback fiction that you knew without looking that Graham Greene was Penguin, whilst Ian Fleming was definitely Pan. When I was growing up, Puffin was children's books. Of course, by some aberration, my beloved Jennings and Molsworth were mostly published by the cheaper Armada, but in all other cases it had to be the junior Penguin imprint in september 1969 we moved house it was a straightforward journey about six miles north but in every other way it was a move to another planet my conscious life thus far had taken place in a modest but comfortable three-bedroomed council flat in hackney that we were moving to a semi-detached house in middle-class woodford green only tells part of the story for a start in hackney My fellow pupils were mostly either from West Indian or Greek-Cypriot families. When I turned up at my new school on the edge of Epping Forest, I almost suffered snow-blindness from the universal whiteness of my new schoolmates. And this remained the case for the rest of my school days. Until I worked for a while in Latvia a few years ago, Woodford Green in the 1970s was the whitest place I ever saw. Being uprooted at ten was more traumatic than I would ever have admitted at the time. My closest friends disappeared from my life. I desperately missed the small gang of us who swam in hackney baths on most weekday nights after school, ignoring the various warning posters by bombing, ducking and swimming in the diving area. In Woodford Green, I didn't form new friendships easily. There was no more lonely feeling before or since, than joining a primary school in the last year and failing to fit in with kids who had already forged their own lifelong bonds and Lord of the Flies hierarchies. I was friendless, bullied, and my schoolwork suffered. During my last term in Hackney, the headmaster wrote to my parents recommending that I needed extra tuition because I was far too ahead of the other kids to gain much from normal lessons. But at Woodford Green Primary, I fell so far behind, that my teacher bluntly told my parents I was not grammar-school material. My refuge was books. In those pre-decimal days, a Puffin paperback cost three and six, the exact sum my grandmother used to slip me every Friday night after dinner, which I spent at the Angel Bookshop in Islington, or the WH Smiths in Notting Hill Gate while my parents were busy buying or selling antiques. I'm not going to extol the virtues of Roald Dahl or Anthony Buckeridge here. Other people have done this to death, because the best thing I discovered in any Puffin was the message at the back of the book inviting me to join the Puffin Club. A look at the Puffin Post, the quarterly journal of the Puffin Club, gives us a window into a virtual literary salon as sophisticated in its own way as the Bloomsbury Group. Its pages, its organised, admittedly London-centric events, its in-jokes and its implied knowledge of Aldous Huxley or the Brontes became a haven for all bookish put upon underachievers such as me, as they prepared for the horrors of adolescence. In 1970, a modest announcement appeared in its pages, The club invited members to audition for the Puffin Players one Saturday afternoon with the intention of performing a double bill of new plays by the author Joan Aiken. Mum left my dad in charge of the antiques business to accompany me to a church hall in Waterloo and on the way she prepared me for disappointment. There are going to be a lot of other children there, she said. Kids who had acting lessons or have been to stage school. She reminded me of my response in years to come, not simply because of its thought through logic, but also for the completely uncharacteristic confidence with which at the age of eleven I delivered it. For a start, I said, most of them will be girls. Boys aren't interested in theatre. Also, I'll be better than nearly everyone else there. Why do you think they always get me to read something at the Christmas service at school even though I'm Jewish. I've compared notes on this in the years since that bus ride to Waterloo. Outside of the Golders Green, Finchley and Ilford Axis, every school had just one or two Jewish kids who, fighting to be heard at home, had no problem speaking loudly and articulately in public. We were always roped into the school Christmas service, and, in taking account of our heathen disregard for the true saviour, ended up reading Isaiah chapter 9. That's the bit of the Old Testament which predicts the coming of the Messiah without giving any names, dates or specifics. The audition went as predicted. Lots of girls there with cut-glass accents and a couple of smart assed boys, a bit like me. They cast me as the dashing young hero in the first play, The King Who Declared War on the Animals, directed by Joan Aiken's daughter Lisa. My only disappointment here was that the other play, called Winter Thing, looked far more interesting and grown up, but Winter Thing needed an older teenage cast. My debut as a serious method actor would have to wait. Every weekend I made my way to Waterloo to rehearse and hang out with my new best friends. They all seemed to have the nicely spoken and mannered demeanour of children educated privately. It might have been that some of them saw me as the chippy member of the company, the one played by Jack Wilde rather than Mark Lester. But what we all had in common was reading. Instead of tediously repetitive banter about Spurs or Arsenal, it was more like, Have you read any H.G. Wells? No, not just the sci-fi stuff. Try Mr Polly, it's really very good. The King Who Declared War on the Animals debuted for one night only at the Young Vic during its inaugural season in late 1970. The audience loved it because audiences full of mums and dads generally love anything their children do. But there were follow-up performances in various art centres and libraries in the outer reaches of South London, so we must have been doing something right. Within a year or two, I outgrew Puffin books and discovered Agatha Christie and Ray Bradbury with a side order of Richard Allen's Skinhead series. My last interaction with the Puffin Club was at a tea party in early 1972 at the Notting Hill flat of Puffin's editor-in-chief, K. Webb. By this time, I had found my own group of friends at home, geeks and misfits, who I could sit with during break times, as we wondered why girls didn't know we existed. But at least I was no longer being bullied. That was The Magazine, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. And I'll see you next time.